European Heart Journal, Issue at a Glance, Volume 44, Issue 36. Focus Issue, Epidemiology, Prevention and Healthcare Strategies, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Philippe Boucraire, read to you by Morgan Bryan. Challenges and Opportunities in Prognostication, Focus on Ischemic Heart Disease and Atrial Fibrillation. This focus issue on epidemiology, prevention and healthcare strategies contains the Placing patient reported outcomes at the centre of cardiovascular clinical practice Implications for quality of care and management A statement of the ESC Association of Cardiovascular Nursing and Allied Professions or ACNAP The Association for Acute Cardiovascular Care or ACVC European Association of Percutaneous Cardiovascular Interventions, or EAPCI, European Association of Preventative Cardiology, or EAPC, Heart Failure Association, or HFA, European Heart Rhythm Association, or EHRA, European Association of Cardiovascular Imaging, or EACVI, ESC Regulatory Affairs Committee, ESC Advocacy Committee, ESC Digital Health Committee, ESC Education Committee, and the ESC Patient Forum. The authors note that patient reported outcomes, or PROs, provide important insights into patients' own perspective about their health and medical condition, and there is evidence that their use can lead to improvements in the quality of care and to better informed clinical decisions. Their application in cardiovascular populations has grown over the past decades. This statement describes what PROs are and provides an inventory of disease-specific and domain-specific PROs that have been developed for cardiovascular populations. International standards and quality indices have been published, which can guide the selection of PROs for clinical practice and in clinical trials and research. Patients, as well as experts in psychometrics, should be involved in choosing which are most appropriate. Collaborations are needed to define criteria for using PROs to guide regulatory decisions, and the utility of PROs for comparing and monitoring the quality of care and for allocating resources should be evaluated. New sources for recording PROs include wearable digital health devices, medical registries, and electronic health records. Advice is given for the optimal use of PROs in shared clinical decision-making in cardiovascular medicine and concerning future directions for their wider application. A healthy diet is a pillar of prevention. Plant-based diets have become increasingly popular thanks to their purported health benefits and more recently for their positive environmental impact. In a state-of-the-art review article entitled Vegetarian and Vegan Diets – Benefits and Drawbacks Tian Wang and colleagues from the University of Sydney in Australia note that prospective studies suggest that consuming vegetarian diets is associated with a reduced risk of developing cardiovascular disease or CVD, diabetes, hypertension, dementia and cancer. Data from randomised clinical trials have confirmed the protective effect of vegetarian diets for the prevention of diabetes and reductions in weight, blood pressure, 
glycosylated hemoglobin and low-density lipoprotein cholesterol. But to date, no data are available for cardiovascular event rates and cognitive impairment, and there are very limited data for cancer. Moreover, not all plant-based foods are equally healthy. Unhealthy vegetarian diets, poor in specific nutrients, vitamin B12, iron, zinc and calcium, and or rich in highly processed and refined foods, increase morbidity and mortality. Further mechanistic studies are desirable to understand whether the advantages of healthy, minimally processed vegetarian diets represent an all-or-nothing phenomenon, and whether consuming primarily plant-based diets containing small quantities of animal products, e.g. pesco-vegetarian or Mediterranean diets, has beneficial, detrimental or neutral effects on cardiometabolic health outcomes. Further mechanistic studies are warranted to enhance our understanding about healthy plant-based food patterns and the biological mechanisms linking dietary factors, CVD, and other metabolic diseases. In a Viewpoint article entitled Routine Postoperative Troponin Surveillance After Non-Cardiac Surgery Are We Ready? Hilton von Klei and colleagues from the University Health Network Toronto in Canada indicate that in contemporary non-cardiac surgery, 2-4% of patients experience postoperative myocardial infarction, or MI. This can be either type 1, plaque rupture, or type 2, supply demand, MI, according to the universal definition of myocardial infarction. Although troponin elevations after immediate to high-risk non-cardiac surgery is reflecting myocardial injury, the authors argue that it is premature to recommend postoperative troponin surveillance in guidelines. Indeed, there are many perioperative pathophysiological conditions in addition to MI resulting in troponin elevation. With an estimated incidence of around 18%, troponin elevation is common after surgery. Consequently, without clear diagnostic pathways and subsequent treatment, routine surveillance will result in a significant number of positive tests that are nothing more than an epiphenomenon. Such surveillance may result in harm due to additional invasive testing or postponed surgery in case baseline values are obtained before surgery, as has also been recommended. Future research endeavours should focus on the development of strategies to improve early diagnosis and prognosis of potentially treatable causes, including sepsis, pneumonia and pulmonary embolism. The utility of perioperative troponin surveillance in detecting these complications awaits a definitive clinical trial. Until then, in the opinion of the authors, surveillance should be applied cautiously. Lifestyle risk factors are a modifiable target in atrial fibrillation, or AF, management. The relative contribution of individual lifestyle risk factors to AF development has not been described. In a clinical research article entitled New Onset Atrial Fibrillation Prediction The Harms to AF Risk Score Louis Sigan and colleagues from the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne, Australia indicate that the development and validation of an AF lifestyle risk score to identify individuals at risk of AF in the general population are the aims of the study. 
the UK Biobank, or UKB, and the Framington Heart Study, or FHS, are large prospective cohorts with outcomes measured after a follow-up of greater than 10 years. Incident AF was based on International Classification of Diseases version 10 coding. Patients with prior AF were excluded. Cox Proportional Hazards Regression identified independent AF predictors which were evaluated in a multivariable model. A weighted score was developed using the UK Biobank and externally validated in the Framington Heart Study. Kaplan-Meier estimates ascertained a risk of AF development. Among 314,280 UK Biobank participants, AF incidence was 5.7%, with median time to AF of 7.6 years. Hypertension, age, body mass index, male sex, sleep apnea, smoking, and alcohol were predictive variables, all P being less than 0.001. Physical inactivity and diabetes were not significant. The predictive performance of the score, ARMS 2 AF, was good with an area under the curve, or AUC, of 0.782. External validation in the Framington Heart Study, AF incidence 6% of 7,171 participants, demonstrated an AUC of 0.757. The HARMS 2 AF risk model outperformed the Framington AF, AUC 0.568, and the ARIC, AUC 0.713 risk models, both P being less than 0.001 and was compatible to the charge AF risk score, AUC 0.754, P equaling 0.73. Sagan et al. conclude that the HARMS2 AF score is a novel lifestyle risk score that may help identify individuals at risk of AF in the general community and assist population screening. This manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Gregory Marcus from the University of California in the USA. The author notes that behavioural economists have taught us that if you want people to make use of something, keep it simple and reduce friction in implementation. Creating a simple AF prediction algorithm that can be gleaned from a single patient interview without the need for medical testing such as ECG or electrocardiograms and calculated in a simple addition, without the use of a digital calculator, is an important step in that direction. Also, because HARMS 2 AF is comprised largely of lifestyle factors, patients can be encouraged to actively reduce their score, which itself may prove to be a motivator to meaningfully reduce their AF risk. This then may become a tool not only to inform the clinician, but also to inform the patient in a digestible fashion, allowing clinicians and patients to work together to target discrete goals and ultimately diminish the risk of AF. Complications of coronary artery disease, or CAD, represent the leading cause of death among adults globally. In another clinical research article entitled Genetic, Sociodemographic, Lifestyle and Clinical Risk Factors of Recurrent Coronary Artery Disease Events, a Population-Based Cohort Study. Solmi Jemachao and colleagues from the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard in Cambridge, Massachusetts, USA, 
Examine the associations and clinical utilities of genetic, sociodemographic, lifestyle and clinical risk factors on CAD recurrence. Data were from 7,024 UK Biobank middle-aged adults with established CAD at enrolment. Cox Proportional Hazards Regressions modelled associations of age at enrolment, age at first CAD diagnosis, sex, cigarette smoking, physical activity, diet, sleep, Townsend Deprivation Index, body mass index, blood pressure, blood lipids, glucose, lipoprotein A, C-reactive protein, estimated glomerular filtration rate, or EGFR, statin prescription, and CAD Polygenic Risk Score, or PRS, with first post-enrolment CAD recurrence. Over a median follow-up of 11.6 years, 28.5% of patients presented recurrent CAD events. The hazard ratio for CAD recurrence was the most pronounced with current smoking and per standard deviation increase in age at first CAD. Additionally, age at enrollment, CAD PRS, C-reactive protein, lipoprotein A, glucose, low-density lipoprotein cholesterol, deprivation, sleep quality, EGFR and high-density lipoprotein, or HDL, cholesterol, were also significantly associated with recurrent risk. Based on C indices, the strongest predictors were CAD-PRS, 0.58, HDL cholesterol, 0.57, and age at initial CAD event, 0.57. The authors conclude by noting that sociodemographic, clinical, and laboratory factors are each associated with CAD recurrence, with genetic risk, age at first CAD event, and HDL cholesterol concentration explaining the most. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by William Weintraub from the Health Research Institute and Department of Medicine, Georgetown University, Washington, D.C., USA, and William Bowden from the VA Boston Healthcare System, Jamaica Plain Campus, in Boston, Massachusetts, USA. The authors note that modeling exercises are always difficult, and frequently limited by data quality and availability. Most prediction models will leave readers, quite appropriately, unsure of the value of the model in informing actionable care decisions. Furthermore, association noted in models does not necessarily equate to causation. Establishing causation is a complicated and generally uncertain endeavour. Yet making diagnostic and or therapeutic decisions based solely on models does not require consideration of causation for both diagnostic and therapeutic applications. Randomized trials have been and will remain the gold standard for establishing causation and making clinically informed, evidence-based decisions. Non-randomized assessments of diagnostic and therapeutic strategies will generally be uncertain due to treatment selection bias. For risk factors, randomization is not an option except for genetics. However, even for Mendelian randomization, the evaluation of a PRS can be clouded by both environmental and social determinants of health, or SDOH, as well as therapeutic choices, e.g. treatments of elevated LDL cholesterol. In summary, 
While prediction models may be informative, as shown in the present study, and may highlight the importance of a PRS and social determinants of health, the degree to which this provides additional incremental information for clinicians to reliably predict future cardiac events remains uncertain. Transcatheter closure of patent foramen ovale, or PFO, is the recommended stroke prevention treatment in patients less than or equal to 60 years with cryptogenic ischemic stroke and PFO. AF or flutter is a known potential procedure-related complication, but long-term risk of developing AF remains unknown. In a clinical research article entitled Long-term risk of atrial fibrillation or flutter after transcatheter patent foramen ovale closure, a nationwide Danish study. Christian Valdemar Schriebsted and colleagues from the Aarhus University Hospital in Denmark studied the long-term risk of developing AF following PFO closure. A Danish nationwide cohort study was conducted. During 2008 to 2020, this study identified a PFO closure cohort, a PFO diagnosis cohort without PFO closure, and a general population comparison cohort, matched 10 to 1, to the PFO closure cohort on age and sex. The outcome was first-time AF diagnosis. Risk of AF and multivariable adjusted HR of the association between PFO closure or PFO diagnosis and AF were calculated. A total of 817 patients with PFO closure, 1,224 with PFO diagnosis, and 8,170 matched individuals were identified. The five-year risk of AF was 7.8% in the PFO closure cohort, 3.1% in the PFO diagnosis cohort, and 1.2% in the matched cohort. The HR of AF comparing PFO closure and PFO diagnosis was 2.3, and significant within the first three months, but not thereafter. The HR of AF comparing PFO closure with the matched cohort was 51 within the first three months and 2.5 thereafter, significant in both cases. Schiefset and colleagues conclude that patent foramen ovale closure is not associated with any substantial increased long-term risk of developing AF beyond the well-known procedure-related short-term risk. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by A. John Cam from St. George's, University of London, in the United Kingdom. The author notes that the very recent 2023 National Clinical Guidelines for Stroke for the United Kingdom and Ireland make the following recommendation. Selected people below the age of 60 with ischemic stroke, or TIA, of otherwise undetermined etiology, in association with a PFO and a right-to-left shunt, or an atrial septal aneurysm should be considered for endovascular PFO device closure within six months of the index event to prevent recurrent stroke. This decision should be made after careful consideration of the benefits and risks by a multidisciplinary team, including the patient's physician and the cardiologist performing the procedure. The balance of risk and benefit from the procedure 
including the risk of atrial fibrillation and other recognised periprocedural complications, should be fully considered and explained to the person with stroke. The present study offers some further information from which to clarify this risk, but we will still need to know more. The issue is also complemented by two discussion forum contributions. In a commentary entitled, Remnant cholesterol as a lipid-lowering target may have a long way to go. Ye Zhuan Zhao and colleagues from the Fu Wai Hospital in Beijing, China, comment on the recent publication, Elevated remnant cholesterol, plasma triglycerides, and cardiovascular and non-cardiovascular mortality by Benjamin Wedstrom from the Copenhagen University Hospital in Denmark. Wedstrom et al. respond in a separate comment. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will be of interest to its listeners.